Welcome to the Acts 29 U.S. South Central Podcast. I'm Bob Thune, and I'm glad to be your host for this episode. Acts 29 is a global family of church-planting churches. The U.S. South Central Network of Acts 29 is focused on church planting in the states of Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, along with the western slice of Missouri. On this podcast, we take the best content we have on church planting and church leadership, and we make it available to you to equip and encourage you in gospel ministry. On today's episode of the podcast, you'll hear from yours truly. That's right, me. Recently, we hosted a network training event in Oklahoma City, and at that event, I had the privilege of speaking on the biblical metaphor of the household of God and how this helps us understand the nature of the church. And so here I am now teaching on that topic. The genesis of sort of thinking about these metaphors together um, came out of some work that Josh Curry did for leadership training at Frontline, just really put a lot of thought uh, and study into thinking around these metaphors. And so as we got ready to sort of do this Heartland event, man, Josh, as a good friend, just sent me this huge research brief on all these metaphors. And it was just a rich feast of, um, of really thoughtful work on this stuff. And so I'm sort of the bad cover band down at the bar playing Tom Petty songs. And what's worse, Tom Petty's in the bar. So I just, I don't make any claim to it being my song. I just hope I do a decent enough job playing it, all right? So uh, that's what I'm here to do uh, for the next few minutes. Thank you, Josh, for your faithful work on this, brother. I really appreciate it. Um, One year, seven months, and 19 days ago, uh, my wife and I sold our family home at 812 North 149th Avenue. Uh, We had owned that home since 2004. My oldest son is 21, so you can do the math. What that means is that all four of my kids grew up in that home and learned to ride bikes on that sidewalk and played in that backyard and got their diapers changed on that changing table and all that stuff. And so this had really been our family home for quite a significant period of time. Um, But it's more significant than that for me because in 2004, we bought that home from my mom and dad. Uh, They were moving out of Omaha And so we bought that house from them. It was a house that they had built in 1982 when I was eight years old, and it was that only home I'd ever known in Omaha the whole life that I'd lived there. So to me, that place was home in a deeper way than it was even for my wife and my kids. Uh, That particular piece of real estate uh, was the place where uh, my brother and I built tree houses in the backyard before there were other houses in the neighborhood. We scavenged lumber and building materials and constructed skateboard ramps and tree houses right on the vacant lots next door. Um, this was the home where, uh, you know, when my first girlfriend broke up with me in high school, I bawled my eyes out in that bathroom upstairs. Um, when I was trying to really figure out as a 22-year-old guy, am I ready to marry this woman that I think I am in love with? I remember sitting down with my dad in that living room and looking at him and saying, Dad, can I do this? Like, am I ready for this? And I remember him looking at me and saying, son, you can do this. You're ready for this. This was the backyard that I remember distinctly my sophomore year in college. I have one younger brother, He's two years younger than me, and and so what that meant is our whole lives growing up, I beat the crap out of him for our whole life. But there was a moment my sophomore year in college when I came home for the summer, 
and he had gotten bigger and stronger than me, and he was in the living room with a bunch of his friends, and I was being obnoxious and provoking him, and we got to tussling, and we ended up in the backyard in a full-scale Reed Monahan-style brawl, and it was that moment where he pinned me, and all of a sudden I realized, oh, this relationship has changed. And then we both got up and sort of had that moment of knowing, looking at one another and I just went on with life. We're like, well, that just happened, right? Uh, this is the place where when my youngest daughter, when we brought her home from China as a 16-month-old orphan, right? This is the living room that she walked in and met her brothers and sisters in for the first time. So there's a lot of life at this address. And um, what happened was um, in selling that house, um, shortly after we made that decision, I became overwhelmed with a deep sense of loss and a deep sense of longing. And I realized what I probably should have realized earlier, which was, hey, this was home for me in a way that was really deep and profound and goes beyond any piece of real estate or any transaction. Like there was a, there was a place that place held in my life and in my soul that was deep and weighty and distinct. And, and I went through a real season of having to wrestle with the reality of what it felt like to long for home, which I'd never felt before because that had literally been, that had been home forever. I just didn't even think about it. But once that was removed, I recognized this deep ache in my soul, this deep longing for home. And I realized I, I just sold home, right? And my kids and my wife knew that. And we talked about that and tried to have those conversations. Uh, they felt that as well. So now we have a house, and it's a great house, and it's a good real estate investment. But it's not quite home in the same way. Uh, 812 North 149th Avenue was a, a place of refuge and rest to me. And it represented a people I belonged to. And what was weird for me was how that people was actually bigger even than my nuclear family. Like two doors down is a woman who's now in her 80s who has lived in that house since I was a kid, and she was a great neighbor. She was a crotchety neighbor. She was that neighbor who would walk her dog around the block, and like if you trimmed your bushes the wrong way, she would stop in front of your house and just sort of stare at your landscaping in a very disapproving way. <laughs> and I realized how much I miss that. Like I have this weird camaraderie and friendship with her that just felt like, man, this sense of place is actually bigger even than just relationships in my family. There was a neighborhood that I was a part of. There was a, 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 a constellation of relationships that were meaningful in my life in all kinds of ways. Place and people merged together for me at that address. Here's what I realized and what you're already figuring out even as I say this. The, the longing for home is a pretty fundamental human longing. That taps into something pretty deep in us. Here's how Ronald Rollheiser puts it. In the end, whether we know it or not, what we all want at the end of the day is home. The energies of our youth drive us out, and in that restlessness we search in many places, and sometimes in all the wrong places, for that home we have lost and are trying again to find. Deeper than our wanderlust and the desire for adventure is the desire to find our way back home. Home feels to us like such deep magic because it's, it's central to what we've lost in sin and to what we gain in redemption. 
It's this longing that the story of the scriptures speak to us about. And so let's take a quick journey through redemptive history and tap into this ache and this longing. If you have a Bible, open it to Genesis 2. You know the story, Genesis 2, 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. By the way, notice he planted a garden, and there he put them. So so he by his hand shaped this environment specifically for the man he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This garden where our first parents were placed was a place of abundance and a place of presence. This was home in a way that just went beyond the basic necessities. This was a place of flourishing and thriving and liberality and generosity. And it was a place where they had the the gift, the amazing gift of God's very presence with them. Their clothing was his majesty. They knew and were known deeply and fully. Eden has all the fundamental ingredients of home, right? It's a place where they're meant to flourish, and it's a set of relationships. It's a a relational context that's full of life and meaning. The creation story teaches us two inescapable truths about human beings, about what it means to be human. First of all, it shows us that place matters. Place matters. We are spatiotemporal beings. We are the only creature on the planet who hangs pictures on the wall. Why do we do that? Because place matters. Our souls require a sense of place, something that feels like home. So first, place matters. And second, creation teaches us that we are relational beings. The most beautiful, the most elegant, the most expensive home can feel like a prison or even a tomb without a set of nourishing relationships that give it meaning, right? The enchantment of the garden was not just physical beauty, it was relational harmony. It was the relational context that was there, and most importantly, it was the communion with God that our first parents knew and thrived within. And so Adam and Eve's rebellion brought homelessness of the most profound kind. You know, Genesis 3, 24 says he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life adam and eve are sent out they're driven out of this place that is home and in in one way at least even of the presence of god and we've been trying to find our way back ever since haven't we Turn over to the book of Joshua. I want to make an interesting canonical connection for you that maybe you haven't made before. But it's interesting in light of that end to the creation narrative, what happens in Joshua chapter 5. You remember the story? They're outside Jericho. They're getting ready to enter in and conquest. And in Joshua 5.13, here's what we read. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... A man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went out and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Why? Where is he? Do you remember where Jericho is? It's the easternmost city in the promised land. Who is this angel with a drawn sword, and why is he here? Friends, because this is the gate to the Garden of Eden. These stories connect to each other. The people are supposed to see the promised land is God, bring us back home. It's God, bring us back to the garden. There's an angel with a sword here. That's not an accident in the story. That angel shows up there at this moment in time for a reason. And so the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's quest to bring his people back home. But you know how it works out, right? Even when they enter the promised land and have some sense of dwelling there, they still don't have rest. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of that. And without an answer to the problem of sin, they can't even enjoy the fullness of God's presence. And so you know the story. They, they get to the land, but they can't fully rest there, and they're not reconciled to the presence of God there. And so they end up in exile again. The story of the Garden of Eden is recapitulated as they are cast out of the land. But listen to how the prophet Isaiah speaks hope. And again, catch the metaphor. Isaiah 43, verse 6. I'm going to start actually in 5 where God says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. So every direction is named here. Bring my sons from afar. And my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name. God's using familial language to describe his promise to gather his people back home. This is the great hope that the prophets hold out, even as the story of the Old Testament begins to show where it's going to end in a sense of exile and longing. Well, let's skip ahead to the future, to the end of the story, and get a sense of where it ends. Revelation 21. You know the story because this is the chapter we always go to to talk about the future hope, right? Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Forgive John for mixing his metaphors. He's not trying to fit bride and household into different categories, right? He's just bringing it all together. Here we have the bride. Here we have the new city. Here we have God's sons and daughters, the people. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So the promise is we will be once again in the place we long to be in the presence of God. We go on to read, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy 
and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So the image of a tree of life guarded by a flaming sword has given way to the image of a spring of water that flows freely for healing. The thirsty ones who've been looking and longing for home are now sons and daughters and brothers and sisters living together as family with God in a new home. Okay, so we see the past and we see the future. And now the question for us is, what is God doing in the present to move us toward this future? To bring us out of this past into this future? What does God do to bring his people home and to make them a family? And it's no surprise where I'm going, right? This is the grounding of the New Testament metaphor of the household of God. And so let's go to Ephesians 2, which I think is the place where we see this worked out uh, in its fullness and in a really Trinitarian fashion. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit conspiring together to gather God's people into his household and create this new home, this new family. So I'm just going to read through Ephesians 2 and make some running commentary, and then we'll apply it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, think Revelation 21, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we see the, the love of the Father as the foundation of his redeeming work. We see his desire to gather us into his family and to display in the coming ages his glory. Verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Just hear that in the category of place and people, right? You had no place, you had no people. You were not part of a family, you were a stranger to the covenants, you were alienated from the commonwealth, the people. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in pace of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, tears down what separates us from one another, brings us into this one new people that he is shaping in union with him. Verse 18, for through him we both have access 
in one spirit to the Father. So here you have the whole work of the Trinity. Verse 19, so then, you and your churches and everyone whom you serve who is united with Jesus, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's our, there's our metaphor. And then notice this household language also has sort of some architectural uh, categories to it, right? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. There's our next metaphor for the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in Christ, by the Spirit, we're being built together into a dwelling place for God. You see this beautiful Trinitarian work of gathering us into a household and bringing us into a new family. The church is a household built on the love of the Father through the work of the Son in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is a controlling metaphor in Scripture, this idea of a household, a family, a people. See also, right, 1 Timothy 3, you guys know this, right? When it talks about the qualifications for elders, 1 Timothy 3, 5, is if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Why are those things synonymous? Because the church is the household of God, right? Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the church, or of the truth, sorry. And see also 1 Peter 4.17, Galatians 6.10. These both use the language of household. So I want you to have in your mind, right? I think the word household is interesting because it's obviously familial language, but there's also structure to it, right? A household is, is a family, but it's also a family that has an order to it. And there's a sense of, it's uh, the, the, the sort of idea of an economy is sort of the same Language, right? It's the idea of there's a, there's a system at work here. There's a relational framework that this creates. It's not just the set of relationships that exist. It's also the culture and the context that that creates. So let's think about then the implications of this metaphor for the church. What does this mean for us? As Josh already mentioned, we in Reformed and Evangelical traditions tend to emphasize the offices of the church, elder and deacon, as you know, these are important. We should not neglect them or fail to emphasize them, but perhaps a more important need even in our day is emphasizing the familial ministries of mothering and fathering and brothering and sistering, right? Um, th this is the kind of so, so there's offices in the church, but there's also this, this relational ministry that doesn't fit into the category of an office. It's just the way the household of God relates to one another, right? Uh, let me find my text so I can just read it as it's actually written. 1 Timothy 5, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. He's writing to a young pastor. Hey, be careful how you talk to older men in your church. Talk to them like a father. How would you talk to 
your dad, or, or to an uncle, or to a man who's older that you respect. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. What a, what a powerful command to us in how we're to lead the household of God that, that we have to take account of fathering, mothering, brothering, and sistering in how we speak and how we lead and how we discharge the functions of the office. One of our, one of our most important works and roles that we have to figure out how to live into and that I'm still figuring out how to live into and you likely are too, is the role of spiritual father. We have to figure out how do we connect people to God the Father? How do we help them embrace and deal with their relational gaps and the dysfunction they may have experienced in their family of origin and, and experience God's grace redeeming all of that? So how do we pay attention to these ministries? Mothering, fathering, brothering, and sistering. This is perhaps the most neglected part of our discussion about gender roles in the church. We talk a lot about what women can do or can't do. We talk very little about what does it mean to have both mothers and fathers and both sisters and brothers. And probably if we put the emphasis there, we would both highlight some important things and, and maybe avoid some common pitfalls as well. Not that we don't need to have the other conversation, but I just don't hear us talking a lot about brothering and sistering. My friend Dusty White is in the room. One of the beautiful things he's doing in our church and does it on a regular basis is he, he's just gathered a group of guys right now. He calls it the dad group. And it's men in our church that we just know have painful father stories. And he's just getting in a room with them and saying, hey, let's just get around a table and let's, let's just chop this up together. Let, let me, let me like step in and help you understand who God is as your father. And he leads that out of his own story. And it's a beautiful thing. And you know what it does? It allows men in our church to connect to and be fathered by sort of a human father in a way that connects them to their heavenly father. I already told you, I grew up with one brother, and so I had no sisters. I didn't know what it meant to have a sister, to relate to someone as a sister. But one of the most profound experiences in my formation as a young leader was my friend Amy, 30 miles down the road at the University of Oklahoma, who loved me enough as a knucklehead 20-year-old to pull me aside and say, hey, can I just, can I talk to you about something? You're a really strong leader. You love the Lord, but you're kind of a knucklehead sometimes. Can I tell you what I see and, and what probably you need to grow in? And man, it was a beautiful grace to me because no one had ever talked to me that way and because she just was loving me as a sister and I didn't, I didn't know what that felt like. And to that day, that's a formative event in my life for me to see some things that without that conversation, I would have not seen. So implication number one, I think, is let's not stop talking about offices, but let's talk about familial relating to one another, the ministry of family, the ministry of mother, father, sister, brother. Uh, here's a second implication. Uh, this was suggested to me by one of my seminary professors, and it was profound. Church discipline is family discipline. Like, think about the language of Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. If a brother sins against you. Like, the language is familial language. And I think sometimes to us, because we know that, like, church discipline is formal in some way, we formalize it in a way that makes it feel really institutional. What it's supposed to be is, a family, having a family meeting and going, hey, we got some stuff we need to talk about here. Uh, 
let's do some work, right? It's the same way you would talk to your kids or have a, have a meeting in your family to resolve some dysfunction. What does it mean for us to, to think about this household metaphor and our role then as primarily fathers in the room, but also some mothers in the room, brothers and sisters, to, to serve our Father in heaven by caring about the relational framework of his household and the flourishing of his household. Listen, the other thing I think this relates to is just what I already said about there's, um, we all have to create structures and systems and processes just like every household needs that, right? If you don't have a process for paying the bills and managing the budget at your household, things are probably sideways, right? Someone has to do that for the household to flourish. Someone has to think about how are we paying for the kids' education in the future? What are we doing with screen time, right? These are, these are ways that a family sort of creates structures to allow it to thrive. Are you thinking about the processes and structures and systems in your church, not just as pathways we need to get people from A to B so we can get output Z, but as a framework for relational flourishing and health? How in our processes and systems do we draw people into a family and help them understand, here's how things work here. Here's what it means to be part of the family. So let me do what Josh did. I want to give you a few questions that I want to invite you to reflect on in light of this metaphor, and then I'm going to pray for us and, and give you some time again to discuss these together. Here's the first question. How, where, do you need to more fully experience the love of the Father? How or where do you need to more fully experience the love of the Father? Number two, where is the Lord inviting you to grow as a father and brother or as a sister and mother? Number three, what are the house rules in your church, written or unwritten? What are the house rules? What do people just pick up as like, oh, this is how you guys do things here? Uh, what of those are good and what of those are like maybe not so good? And then finally, what is the family dynamic, the relational frame of your church? Where is it healthy? Where is it unhealthy? I want you to think about this just like you would think about it in your family, right? Where's the relational context good and thriving and where is it maybe sideways? And then I had this profound conversation with my kids on Sunday night. We were sitting around the kitchen table, and they came home from our youth group gathering. My wife and I were already there, and they were frustrated with some of their friends and some things that had happened at youth group. And so we just got into this really deep and profound conversation. And I realized I was kind of frustrated with their frustration with their friends because I was realizing, like, well, you know, God's calling you to step into that and minister to them. And so I was trying to help my kids grow in their taking responsibility of this. But I realized in the midst of that, I was kind of frustrated with them because of their frustrations with other people. And so we were having this really sort of like, let's just talk it out as a family conversation around the table. And here's what I realized in that moment. All three of my kids who are still at home, their, their deepest undercurrent is shame. And that's not my deepest undercurrent. And so I actually suck at relating the gospel to shame. My wife can do that a lot better than I can. And I realize, like the Lord invited me in that moment, I've got to grow there if I'm going to lead these children. 
Because that's the place where they need to hear the gospel. And man, I'm really good at relating the gospel to guilt. There's other categories I feel really, really competent in. But man, that's one. If I'm going to be a father to these children, i got to learn that now. And to me, that's a place in my family where I'm realizing there's a, there's a dynamic that's not good here. We don't have a relational framework for dealing with and applying the gospel to shame. i got to build that. I'm the father here. I need, to, I need to lead us in that direction. And I need to grow myself to get us there. And it just made me think the same is true in my church and yours, right? There's places where just the relational dynamic or how you've learned to talk about and apply the gospel is really rich and good, but there's places where it has gaps. What is the frame and where does it need attention? So let's think about that together. Stand with me again and let me pray for us. And let's spend some time talking in small groups. I'm going to give you the same instructions, Josh. You can gather back with the same group. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Or if you feel like, hey, it would be fruitful to mix that up, that's fine too. You guys are leaders and adults and you'll figure it out. Father, thank you for the sweetness of the household of God. Thanks for the sense that this is home to us. And it's home in a way that's deeper than any physical address, deeper than any family of origin. It's better and fuller than the best family, and it makes up for all the inadequacies of the worst family. So, Father, thanks that this is the household you've called us into. And and make us mindful now, Lord, in this moment of two things. One, your love for each of us as a father. Remind us that our identity before pastor, before leader, before deacon, before elder, before ministry leader, our primary identity is son or daughter brought into the Father's family by the grace of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. So remind us of your fatherly love for us, but then also remind us of the responsibility we have to to steward your household, to care for your household, to, to seek after its flourishing and thriving, to do our best to cause the, the little places called local churches that reflect the ethos of your household to be as healthy and rich as they can possibly be so that people see the glory of the Father and the beauty of the household and the, the wonder of the work of Jesus to give us aliens a home. So stir in us now in the places where you need to to provoke us both to reflection and thought, to repentance and growth, and to leadership and activity. Thanks for the joy of thinking about these things together and guide us into rich conversation about them now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Acts 29 U.S. South Central Podcast. For more information about Acts 29, go to acts29.com. And for information specific to our work in the South Central United States, visit acts29ussouthcentral.org. While you're there, you can sign up for our email newsletter, you can learn about our church planter assessment process, and you can find out about upcoming events. Again, that website is acts29ussouthcentral.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time.